Thank you, John, for that reading. Good morning, everybody. Hope we're all doing well. If you see me up here looking like I'm leaking from the armpits, I am not nervous. It's just a new deodorant that I got, which I'm not a big fan of, but I smell like a rose up here, if you're wondering. So I wanted to get that out of the way so there wasn't a lot of questions if I'm raising my arms and pointing at things and people are getting misted in the front row. As you can see behind me, if you look at the bottom corner of the screen, you'll see that we're in Colossians, which should come as no surprise, but this is the second last lesson that we'll have in this wonderful book. And so it's titled Christian Construction today. And I put that excavator on there because that's something I think of when I hear the word construction. I also put it on there for Fraser because he's a big fan of diggers. That's what he likes to watch and likes to play with. And I thought maybe if I had it up there, he would actually sit here during the sermon, but he's not here today. He's having some trouble with it. One of his wheels, one of his legs is bothering him. But usually he's out of here by now with Emily, which he's learning more with, with her than he would be with me anyways. But we're going to look at today God's instruction to building and maintaining relationships. If you remember the last time that we were in Colossians, we were looking at that same thing. We were looking at the instruction that Paul was giving regarding healthy families, relationships between man and wife, parents and children. And so we're just continuing down that path now as we look at the relationship between masters and slaves, or to modernize that a little bit, the relationship between employers and employees, our relationships between one another. So let's quickly get into the text here. Colossians 3.22 says this, Slaves, obey those who hold on. Slaves. What are we talking about here? I'm not sure if, if your mind goes to the same place where mine does when you hear the word slavery. For me, my mind goes to the not-so-distant past, race-based slavery, cruel and unjust treatment. That's where my mind goes when I hear the word slavery. But I want to give us some context to the times where this, when this letter is actually being written. Slavery in the times of the Old Testament and the early New Testament. See, slavery was quite a common practice. Doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Not condoning that, but it was a very common thing in the Near East and in Rome. It was important for their social and their economic development of the times. That was their structure. They relied on it. A person could become a slave in a few different ways. They could be a prisoner of war, they could be born into it, or they could go into it through something called insolvency. Insolvency is just a fancy word for if I go to a restaurant and forget my wallet at home, can't pay for my burger, I say, hey, let me spend a few hours in the back doing the dishes, I'll work off my debt that way. That's what insolvency is, selling yourself into slavery so that you can pay off a debt. So these are some of the ways that, that people wound up as slaves. Now God did put in place some rules in the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus 21.16 and Deuteronomy 24.7, they both make reference to the fact that it is illegal and forbidden to kidnap and sell a freeborn person. Which, interestingly enough, makes the sale of Joseph, if we remember all the way back then, an illegal transaction. Though I don't think his brothers were overly concerned about that fact. When they sold him off, they just kind of wanted rid of him. But God does say that. So he does outline some things, especially in the Old Testament, 
about how slavery is to be handled. For example, female slaves, if, if their master or her master was, was done with her and had no more use for her, she was to be offered back to the original family as a chance to be redeemed, or she was simply just to be set free. For Hebrew male slaves, after six years, on the seventh year, they too were to be granted their freedom. And here's where something changes, where we, we kind of get maybe a little different shift from the slavery that, that is not so long ago to the slavery that was in the times of the Bible, is that it says that if a slave wanted, they could have an all put through their ear, and then they could serve that family for life. Now, we kind of think that's a weird thing, right? Like, if you were a slave and, and that seventh year finally came, you would be as far away from that workplace as possible, wouldn't you think? God has rules put in place that, that if a master killed a slave, that meant the master's death. So the, God has put things in place so that these relationships would work at least a little better than we think they should. A slave, if he was maimed, if he lost the use of his arm or his hand, but the master's hand was to be set free. Now, if we think to professions today, such as doctors or lawyers, we regard those as fairly well-to-do positions and important positions, correct? They're fairly necessary. But what's weird enough is that slaves in the Old Testament were often doctors and lawyers. Slaves were, in fact, allowed to adopt religious beliefs, they were allowed to rest on the Sabbath, and if they were circumcised, they were allowed to attend the feasts. Many historians believe that a lot of the first Christians were actually slaves themselves. And we know that at the time of the writing of this epistle, that slavery was still very prominent. And so there's a big question to ask. I'm sure the slaves were asking it, and it's a fair one that, that we can ask too, and we can say, Paul, why was your big message not thou shall not own slaves we feel that that's a fair question but we know for Paul as we read in 1st Corinthians that he hardly even had time to baptize people Paul's focus was to preach the gospel that was his calling that was his task and he was on the move doing that constantly his call was not to sort out the social issues of the day but it's interesting enough that in a way the gospel kind of did help sort out those issues. See, in the first century, right when the church was really ramping up, history tells us that the Romans released many of their slaves in record numbers. This is called a manumission, which is just a fancy word for the freeing of slaves. It's recorded that as many as 500,000 slaves over a 30-year third, third, period were released. They were set free as this idea of Christianity started to build in Rome. I think this is due to the people learning about the gospel, that it, it teaches us about the proper treatment of one another, that it teaches us how to value relationships and how to conduct ourselves. See, slavery, in biblical times here, oftentimes the masters would help their slaves expand on the business. They would help them learn more and further their skills and their trades, it said that a slave's wage, which is approximately five denarii a month, actually might have gone further than a free laborer. If you think about it, a slave would have had his food and, and his lodging taken care of, or a free laborer, he might have made more wage, but then he has to pay for all those things. And so as we talk here, we're going to be kind of 
applying that to the idea of the Christian master and the Christian slave. The Christian employee and the Christian employer. But there's also application between the Christian and the non-Christian. It's not an excuse to not behave as a Christian just because your boss is important, as we'll see going forward. We continue our reading, we'll get past slaves there as we now kind of have a, a little better idea of, of, of the context of what, we're, what Paul's writing about here. It says that they obey those who are human masters in everything. I know we're going slow here, but we'll stop at that word there, in everything. Is that really what we're, we're thinking of? If, if, the, if the master asks the slave to, to go cut down his enemy, or if nowadays if, if your boss asks you to fudge the numbers on the report, are we supposed to obey in that? I believe what God is talking, Paul's writing about, and what God is, is talking about here is things that are fitting in the Lord. A Christian master would not ask his employee to sin. It says there that it's not just with eye service as people pleasers. Now we all kind of know what eye service is. When I first started my job at MTS about 10 years ago, I was working up in Stonewall, and there was a, a larger gentleman who I worked with. Now I am that large gentleman, but <laughs> I was, uh, the boss was there, we were having a meeting, and I was a young guy, very gung-ho to start, you know, work hard and establish myself. And the boss said, okay, guys, it's been a good meeting with you. I'm going to be off for the next two weeks. We'll see you back then. And I remember, his name was Harry, kind of looked at me and said, when the cat's away, the mice will play. You guys heard that saying before? When the boss is gone, then, you know, when he's there looking at you, you're pushing the broom, but as soon as he turns the corner, you're, you're leaning on him. And so, that's an all good, funny saying, but it's, is it really what we're supposed to call to be doing? Is that, is that how we're supposed to operate? Just to, just to work hard when the eye is on us, do the minimal work when we know. Sometimes that work, since we have lots of changes in our company now, the one guy who likes Lord of the Rings says he feels like the eye of Sauron is on us when, when we're really being focused. I think that's Sauron is the name. But then he says sometimes the eye turns away and we feel that we can just go on and do what we like. But while we can hide from our bosses on earth here, we can't hide from God. Hiding from God is as, just as effective as Fraser here trying to play hide and seek. <laughs> Those of you who can't see or maybe listen to an audio recording, we have him hiding behind the door, pressed back up against it, which would be fine, except the door is frosted glass, so you can easily see his diapered bum pressed up against it. That is really what hiding from God looks like. It, it, it's fruitless. But sadly, and I can say true, true of myself at times, is that sometimes we seem to be okay with hiding from everyone else, but not necessarily from God, if that makes sense. We seem to be, almost be okay that says that, that we're okay with disappointing God as long as no one else sees us, as long as no one else knows what we're doing. We understand that God knows what we're doing, but sometimes I think we don't give that the respect that it needs to be. This is a wrong thing, obviously. The Greek of that word, I service, it means it's, it's not a sincere effort, it's not an effort to please yourself even, it's not an effort to please God, just to please those who are looking. It's impressive appearance for your employer. Again, how often do we just do the minimum to avoid criticism? We have another epistle that Paul wrote, 
And it's the shortest book in the New Testament. Maybe the shortest in the Bible. But that is the, the letter that Paul writes to Philemon, who himself was a slave owner. Paul writes about Onesimus, Onesimus, because he, he is a runaway slave. You know, he says, enough of this slave business, I'm out of here. And, and who can blame him, probably? But he runs into Paul, learns the gospel from Paul, and is converted. He becomes a Christian. So Paul writes a letter to Philemon saying, to take this guy back. Formerly, yes, he was useless to you. He was no good for you. But now, as a Christian, he knows better. He knows more. You're going to see a change in his work ethic. There's a company called Harris Interactive, and they did a job satisfaction survey. And some of the points were quite interesting. One of them says that across America, which is where primarily this survey took place, 45% of workers say that they are either satisfied or extremely satisfied with their jobs. And that's not a horrible number, 45%, that's pretty good. But that means that the majority is not satisfied with what they're doing. That 33% believe that they have reached a dead end in their career, which is tough. I mean, I can't think of anything that would really like take your motivation more than just looking down the line and seeing that you can't go up or down. Which is why I think 21% are eager to change their careers. They're seeking that motivation. It says that younger workers are the most distressed and they feel like they have the least amount of loyalty to their employers. And I can vouch for that. I mean, I worked a ton of jobs when I was like in high school. Brutal, brutal employee, for sure. Because if something better came along, I was moving on to it. And maybe if some of you can, can relate to that, or maybe some of you have been on the other side of the coin where you've had to hire younger workers and you just realize that all of a sudden they're gone at the drop of a hat, or, you know, they're, they're just maybe really immature. Not all of them, but if we look at the other side of the coin, it says older workers are the most satisfied and the most engaged in their work. And maybe that's because they've been doing it a longer time. They've, they've matured from younger to old. I think it is that they see the end of the line and they know that they're going to retire. That's why they can just give it a little bit of extra, empty the tank. They know it's about to be rest time for them. The years of hard work and they can enjoy their pension and retirement. But I'm not sure. This one I put in a little bigger, bigger letters because I thought it's kind of the most important of the slides that I brought up here. It says, only 20% feel very passionate about their jobs. Only 20% have drive. The motivation is missing. Maybe you've heard this joke where someone goes up to the owner of a, a large, successful company and says, how many people work here? And the owner's response, oh, about half of them. You know, it's kind of a funny joke, but probably quite true in a sense as well. But today we want to look at the tools that God has given us to be sound Christians. What are the properties that make up a good Christian worker and, and just a good person, really. What tools has God given us? This next slide that I'm going to show you, you've probably seen it used in sermons a million times. But it's a good one and it applies in a lot of different spots. The head, heart, and hands idea. The text that we're looking at here in Colossians says this. That we're to be fearing the Lord. I guess I haven't read this one for you yet. Though. As people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, do your work heartedly, as for the Lord, not for people. 
knowing that it's from the Lord that you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So first of all, our head has to be in the right space. I think we realize that, that God is the true boss, the boss with a capital B, and that our primary service is do the Lord. The last word there in purple, serve, in the original language, it is in the imperative mode, imperative mood, which means that it is a command, it's a request, it is a desire. As I mentioned a few times today already, we have to realize how worthy Jesus is of our praise. We have to recognize everything that he's done for us, and, and the more we recognize that, the more we start to understand it and appreciate it. Throughout the Bible, there's a series of I am sayings that Jesus gives. And there's a song, if you guys have your notepads out, or if you just have a really good memory, there's a song called I Am that you should look up. It's really catchy. It's one of my favorites. It's by a gentleman named Mark Schultz. And I don't think he's just from south of here. He might be. But it's a good tune. Uh, I Am by Mark Schultz. And he highlights lots of things just in that song through uh, a nice rhythm and stuff like that about who Jesus is. Of course, where's the motivation? That's what we're talking about here. You see that we will receive the reward of the inheritance. Our mind has to, to realize that. What is that reward for the Christian? That is eternal life, eternal time spent with our Creator. See, and if a slave was reading this if he was sitting down, he would have stood up, and if he was standing, he would have probably sat down. Because slaves were not granted earthly inheritance. There was nothing waiting for them at the end of the line. Nothing that they could look forward to that way. And inheritance is, is different than wage, mind you. But as joint heirs with Christ, we know what we have coming down the line for us. Sometimes it's hard for us to remember that. We have to have that, that knowledge in our minds of our inheritance and that should be our initiative. God is worthy of our effort, even if the masters, even if our bosses, are not. There's a long text here from 1 Peter. I'm going to quickly go through it. 1 Peter 2, 13-24, it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Act as free people, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are harsh. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God a person endures grief when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. And add on there that this is not easy. But as Christians, we are asked to play the long game. And a good worker is one who uses his head and always has that end goal in mind. He looks forward to his inheritance. Heart. God's word to the worker continues. A sincere heart 
This has to be the best trait that an employee can have. With a sincere heart and work heartedly. See, it's, it's easy to turn a blind eye to something, but it should be a lot harder to close your heart off to it. The heart should be pricked very easily if we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing. An insincere heart and attitude can easily be hidden from people. But God sees the heart. As is mentioned in 1 Samuel 16 and 7, the latter part of that verse says, For God does not see as man sees, since man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And why wouldn't he look there? That is, that is our center, that is the spot where will and emotion live. This is the drive, after we know in our mind. This is what drives the body and gets it ready to go. Maybe you've heard it said, it's often said in, in sporting events, that when someone was up against the wall, they were in a tough moment, and they had to dig really deep. It's described that that person had a lot of heart in doing it. They were really focused, and, and that made the difference. So when we're rendering service as employees, if we're rendering it with heart, it's going to be coming from pure motives. Heartily in the Greek, and I'm sorry to bad you with so much Greek, I'm back into it now for another semester, and I've had to really shake off the dust from uh, not being very diligent with it in the summer. But that word heartedly literally means from the soul, so from the very essence of who you are. It's a complete and a whole effort. Just as God wants our devotion to Him to be. Have you ever been in this position? Say you're working on a car somewhere. And it's your buddy's car that comes in. Or a family member's car. Have you ever been in a position where you find yourself working on it and you're really more focused than you would be if it was just some person you've never met down there? I'm not saying that this is a right thing, but have you ever had that? Like I'll even use a level sometimes at work for someone I know. I'm always trying to use a level. But you know, have, have you ever been in that spot where you're just really focused, you're, you're really putting heart and, and love into your effort because you know it's, it's for someone that, that you care for and you love. And you want to get it done right for them. A worker who's displaying heart and has his mind on that he's working for the Lord, he's going to be doing this all the time. A good worker is invested and cares about his position. Because it's a position that God has given him. It's the place where God has him in life. For hands, the final part, it's the part about walking the walk. This is a translation from the NIV, and it says, Obey your masters and everything, and do it. You know, work at it, because you are working for the Lord. You actually have to do something. Your internal knowledge is of little value, if we're not putting it to play, if we're not being transparent, if we're not being authentic, think about quote Christ, because he's the best example we have. The Son of God, when he came, he said all the right things, yes, we know that. But did he do the opposite, or did he do nothing? No, we, we know that he went to what is considered one of the lowest positions. He was a healer. He, he washed the feet. A great example. And it's a good example for, for, for masters as well. That when, when, when your fellow employees see you down with them, working hard and helping out, that, that goes a long way. But, but we'll get to masters in a second here. See, people really notice the doing. 
You've heard it said that actions speak louder than words. The doing is a great opportunity to witness for God. And this might not be the best story, but it was, was one I can, can think of. I was at a training thing a few years ago in, in Winnipeg, and, and we'd broken, and it was time for, for lunch. And so we we're just all sitting at the table, and we're talking, and I doffed my cap for a few seconds and just said a little prayer. And that was it. I said it to myself. And, and that was... didn't think anything of that. But later on, a gentleman, big, gruff, tough guy who's been in a million fights, a proud Scotsman, such as myself, but I've been in zero. <laughs> he comes up to me the next day, and he says, I noticed what you did there. I wasn't really sure what, what he was talking about. And he said that it almost brought a tear to his eye to see that, that someone was willing to do that in public. Not to inflate my own head here, because like I said, it did, we, we all do that without probably thinking about it. But that was an interesting thing. Think of the Good Samaritan story, a story that, that we all know, where there's a guy and he's encountered tough times and he's on the side of the road and, and he needs help. And eventually, someone does help him. But what's interesting is the people who passed him by and who those people were. It says one, a Jewish priest, and the one, a Levite. People who would have known the religion of the day. People that should have known better. They probably knew that it would have been good to help them, to help that man, but they didn't act on it. And sometimes, and a lot of the time, I think, the external part is telling of the internal. So we, as, as Christians, when, when we're at work, when we're providing good service, we can trust that it's going to be successful because God is at work in us as well. John read this for us here, and, and since we've been talking a lot about inheritance, I've got to explain that I've never heard anybody read better than that, John. So thank you very much. That was, that was just the best reading I've ever heard. <laughs> but here, as we look between the stars that'll pop up, we realize that we are all slaves. Whether we are em employed currently, whether we're retired, we're all slaves no matter what, if we're in Christ. Because we're slaves of Christ. We are to follow Him, to obey Him, to emulate Him. This is God's desire for us. And He puts it quite clearly for us. We don't have to sift through it and find out. He's laid it out for us. Colossians 3.25 says this, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong he has done. And that without partiality. This is written to both masters and slaves. This is written to everyone. Maybe you've been at a job, though, that you and your co-worker both got hired at the same time, but the one of them is really buddy-buddy with the boss. And so when it comes time for promotion, you know who's getting the job. Sally's going to be getting it, even though she's asking you how to do her job half the time. We see that, that there's favoritism. We've worked at workplaces where, where there is unfairness, because the world is, is an unfair place. The job site is, is not immune to that. But what we see here is that there is no partiality with God. That good is to be rewarded, that bad will be punished. Possessions and status doesn't so much matter to God. So God is simply just. We trans over, transition over to masters. It says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So there is expectation 
on the bosses as well. Many commentators believe that, that there were not actually many Christians who did own slaves back at the time of this writing because to own slaves you had to be quite wealthy and, and many Christians weren't. But we, we do have one example. We know Philemon. Just as God is, is just and fair, he expects that from the Christian. And if, and if any of you have ever had a, a manager or, or a, a superior at work who, who is a Christian, you can find out that they can be probably quite a joy to work for. The master was not to treat the slave cruelly or as property. The master was to remember, remember Matthew 7, 12. To paraphrase that. Treat people the same way that you want to be treated. Sometimes described as, as the golden rule, I think. John also read this, but it says, And masters do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Important thing to remember. The Harris study that we looked back at before when I presented all those stats, there's one thing that I held off there, and I wanted to put it here. And it says that small firm employees, so people who work for a smaller outfit who probably know by first name the owner or, or the manager of it, they feel far more engaged in their work than their corporate counterparts. Well, for me, example, working for a large company, there are thousands of people in my company who don't know who I am. Which is fine. And I'm glad, because now they'll be expecting a lot of me after I've said all this. And I mean, I'm just going to continue to... Just kidding. But you know, that tells me that there is a very big value in relationships. That is where value lies in the fact that, that they know each other, that, that they, they have a bond. It's that way that the master can really actually influence his employees with positivity. Solid leadership. All the while rem remembering that everyone answers to someone. That God sees all and knows all. The master needed to remember, as it says in Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That was Paul's big reminder to Philemon. You know, you don't take Onesimus back as a slave, but you take him back as a brother. The same word that Paul uses to describe his relationship with Philemon. You guys are on par. Of course, what we what we look at have looked at here today, we can probably all, all agree with that these are good traits, but, but they really only do have true benefit if we act on them. So what simply does it boil down to, to be a good employee or employer? What are we looking to do? I love this verse in 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. The New American Standard actually uses the word diligent, but I like this translation for the fact that it just says that we're to do our best. We are to be out there trying. It doesn't mean we won't necessarily fail, but God wants our best. And as an as a employee, you need not worry if you're doing your best. The same thing with as a master. If you're doing your best, even if you fail, people will recognize it. They see this. We were to remember that this verse that we looked at not that long ago in Colossians 3.17, that whatever we are doing, 
whatever we are saying, whatever we are actually out there performing, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because once we realize who he is, we're going to want to do that. Give thanks through him to God the Father because we realize what he's done. Everything that we do should be to the glory of God. That is who our primary relationship and devotion is to as we close here. But while our relationship is primarily focused on him, you see that he's given us help with our relationships down here via his word. We know that there is work in this life. We know that even Jesus himself had a secular job. We have good works prepared for us from God. We do not have to be in ministry to be in ministry. In fact, every Christian is already in ministry. Jesus was a partner, right? A secular job. There's no religious aspect to putting nails to wood. But our jobs here, they go from secular to sacred when we realize that we're doing it for God. You can bet that Jesus took his opportunities when he was doing that work to live out the way that God wanted him to. We know this about Christ. So putting these practices into motion and in our relationships around us, that's part of those good works that God lays out for us. In Ephesians 2 there. For us, we need to be demonstrating godly relations. And that's a big way of sharing our faith around the world and to the people around us. So I think while we're all under construction all the time, we have to thank God that he's given us a great foreman. And he's given us access to great tools. Thank you very much.